Hi everyone, this is Tyler Buckingham, and I am pleased to announce a brand new feed on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, ASPN University. ASPNU is your podcast destination to access the cutting-edge thinking and research taking place on the campuses and research vessels of the elite academic institutions on the American shoreline. Here you will access the coastal discussions as never before, with engaging stories of cutting-edge research, innovative thinking, and students who will soon be the next generation of coastal and ocean professionals. This month, we kick off ASPNU with a four-part series on engineering with nature, featuring graduate voices from the Oregon State University. Hi there, I'm Megan Wengrove, an assistant professor at OSU and instructor for a coastal engineering with nature course. Our goal with this ASPN series is to explore the use of nature in coastal engineering design. In coming decades, we believe coastal professionals, engineers, and scientists must respond to challenges in a way that is more compatible with nature. We must learn to work with the natural world and not against it. Our weekly series premiering all month on ASPN features four ideas surrounding this theme, each story hosted by a group of OSU graduate students. This week on episode two, hosted by Chris O'Day, Kiernan Kelty, and Josh Dever, we will introduce you to unique artificial islands in Florida where ecologists, engineers, and managers are using mangroves to make the islands into ecosystems. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to the American Shoreline Podcast Network for developing this series with Oregon State University and hosting and distributing our shows. Hope you enjoy the show. My name is Kiernan Kelty, and I'm a master's student here at Oregon State University. I'm here with my co-host. Chris O'Day. I'm also a master's student here at OSU. So um, Chris and I have recently been working on this project here at Oregon State where um, we're looking at mangroves for wave attenuation, and we're going to do some physical modeling testing here at the large wave flume at Oregon State. Um, but part of the work that we've been doing, we recently had to go down to Florida for a um, research field trip. And uh, while we were down there, what was uh, some interesting things that we saw, Chris? So a couple guys from the county there took us out on the boat for a day, and we went to a couple different mangrove islands that were created out of dredge material. Um, so they, they took areas where there was nothing going on in the intracoastal, these deeper non-ecological um, zones and dump spoil material there to create islands um, and bring them up to an intertidal elevation and then started planting mangroves there to try and bring a habitat and um, different physical benefits to the area using these mangroves. So we were interested in doing a podcast on mangroves after all that we saw and learned down in Florida and West Palm Beach on our trip um, because they're not they're not very widely used but they're starting to gain momentum in the coastal engineering world 
Um, people are starting to see their benefits and how resilient they are to sea level rise and hurricanes and storm force waves. Um, there's still a lot of research that needs to be done on them, but we think it's a really interesting and promising topic in the future of coastal engineering. We caught up with Carmen Vera to talk a little bit about the Spoilon projects he's worked on into the past, how that works into um, the public's response to these islands, as well as funding for these projects, and also where he thinks uh, mangrove design is going to go in the future, specifically with a rock pod um, prototype that he'll talk more about in uh, this podcast. So why don't we dive in and get to hear from Carmen Ver from Palm Beach County, who is an environmental specialist there. My name is Carmen Ver. Uh, my, my job title is Environmental Program Supervisor, and I've been working in the field, I guess in that field, which is mangrove restoration. Uh, a lot of it related to reefs. I've been working in the field for over 30 years, um, and in specifically the mangrove area, we've, I've been involved in that since about 1990. So almost, I guess it would be 30 years this year, working with mangroves. <laughs> Awesome. And can you give us just a little bit of background on the types of mangrove projects you've worked on and maybe kind of run through starting from 30 years ago, you know, your first mangrove project to what you're working on a little bit more today? So, uh, yeah, mangroves, mangroves are pretty uh, unique. They, they grow within a very narrow band in the intertidal zone between a little higher than mid-tide up to about high tide. And there's actually three species that grow in that. So the big thing about a mangrove project, and I kind of learned this through the years, is that you have to be really, really careful about how you create the, the elevations. So if you're doing a restoration project, creating mangroves from scratch, you've got to make sure that the grades that you do have to be like an inch tolerance. And if you're off by a couple inches, that could be enough to uh, have the mangrove uh, project fail. Um, and it could, it could also, if it's too high, fail in the, in the sense that it could, that the mangroves could drown. So it'd be too deep. Or if it's too high, you would have exotic vegetation. And in Florida, we have a lot of exotic vegetation uh, that we have to deal with. We have Australian pines, Brazilian pepper. Uh, those are the two big ones that you find in the intertidal zones and in the inner, in the, uh, the estuaries. So we have to deal with that a lot. So, you know, getting that elevation is critical. Um, and I found that through the years is every project you do, you have to make sure the contractor you work with that does the grade work, he has to know that the tolerances are very, very tight. You cannot be plus or minus six inches. That would that could doom a project. Um, the very first projects I worked on uh, were little shoreline projects, little uh, like embayment areas that were pretty simple. The zones were only like 15 foot wide. And we removed some exotic vegetation. I think it was mostly uh, Australian pine. Uh, we didn't even have to do any grading that the elevations were actually good enough to plant mangroves. And we did those uh, about three or four years into my experience, which is probably the mid nineties. We did a project called Munion Island. And there we actually went out to a spoil island and a spoil island is created when you dig out the, uh, the intercoastal waterway, the navigation channel. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times when they did these, they would 
generate the sand and they would sidecast it and sidecasting it relatively close to the channel. Sometimes they would pump it, but it wouldn't be very far from the channel and they create these islands from scratch. And so we sort of targeted those to, to try to restore. Now these areas were probably underwater before they put the sand on them, um, before they spoiled on them. So we weren't going to necessarily restore, you know, the, the bottom underwater, but we knew we could create some mangroves. Generally, uh, South Florida has been uh, drastically impacted from development. Um, you know, 80, 90% of our wetlands here are bulkheaded and we have um, cities and we have uh, individual residential big mansions living on the water. And, you know, there's very, very little natural shoreline left. And all the mangroves have been pretty much gone, decimated. So any place we can grow some additional mangroves, and these spoil islands in particular, we're going to try our best to uh, to try to get as much as we can of that. And it's important for wildlife or for fisheries and that. So Munion was kind of our first bigger project, which was in the 1990s. We had to do that in three phases um, because of the funding. Um, we were a pretty small program back then. We didn't have much funding. So we had to apply for three or four grants and uh, we were able to scratch together maybe $200,000 and we did four acres of mangroves. And this is on an island, so you have to barge everything over there. It's, it can get pretty costly. So we did three phases of that, starting about 90, 1994 and finished up in 1997. Were the grants um, state, federal, local, private? of the grants and actually there was a funding source we came up with in the in the, in the beginning um the, the, when people register their boats there's a, a category called environmental enhancement or restoration so people that register the boats can actually contribute towards um a restoration project that would benefit water quality and fisheries and that and, you know if you're a lot of people own boats or fishermen or people at least like the waterways. And so anything we can do to sort of initiate uh, a restoration effort to try to bring some of that back. Most people are supportive of it. And so I was involved in, in creating an ordinance to collect the money. So we were able to get about, and initially about 1989, 1990, we were able to get about $200,000 allocated for restoration projects. And that's actually increased to about three quarters of a million dollars now that we generate every year that goes towards this. And so we use that money and we typically can match the money that we get from that with other agencies. So we'll go to a state agency, we'll go to uh, the Florida Inland Navigation District, which are the ones that are in charge of the waterways. They typically have funding that they make available for it. We have an agricultural um, program, a state-run agricultural program, uh, and they have funding to help with the trees, planting of the trees. So we probably used, I would say, three or four uh, grants and matched it with our vessel registration fees to initiate the first two phases and then the third phase, which was the biggest one on Monion, and that, it was a 45-acre project. The third phase was probably three-quarters of the project at the end. We got the Army Corps of Engineers. They have a funding program called the 1135, and uh, they provided 75% of the last um, cost to build the project. I think it was like $2 million. So they provided – actually, it was more than that. They provided about $2 million, so the project was maybe $2.6 million. And they came up with the uh, 75%. So that was really nice. And we actually developed a relationship with the Corps after that because this project was a, was a success. Um, everybody pointed towards it. We had a, 
we sort of got a good uh, track record after that. We were able to get a lot more funding from different agencies pointing towards that as success. And so we did, from, we went from Munion, which was pretty much our 1990s project. We went into Peanut Island, uh, which was a big, a big island right in the middle of, of uh, Palm Beach County. So we have Peanut Island, uh, which is a big island in the middle of the central uh, Lake Worth Lagoon in Palm Beach County. It's 80 acres. And so that was a big spoil island that was created when they dug out the channel, the, the Lake Worth Inlet. So they created a big 80 acre. Um, it was actually 40 foot high of sand in the middle. And in Palm Beach County, we have absolutely no elevation. I think 40 feet is maybe the highest elevation in the entire county. That's how flat we are. So, um, we decided we were going to try to do something creative with that material. So we, uh, we barged it and all of it added up to about 1.2, 1.3 million cubic yards, about maybe 1500 barge loads. We we uh, all loaded those up, transported them down about 10 miles and created an area called Snook Islands. And Snook Islands is about a hundred acre restoration project where we put sand, filled in these deep areas uh, that were dredged out to create some of the upland areas nearby. We filled all these areas back in and brought them up in our title. We planted mangroves. We had 12 or 15 acres of mangroves, uh, lots of uh, riprap that we combined with the mangroves that helped to protect the mangroves while they're young, while they're maturing and getting the root system set up. Um, so we were able to get, we, we restored the entire 80 acre peanut islands and as a spinoff project, created another 100 acres of snook islands to the south. And that was paid for 75% of that money to build that came from the Corps of Engineers. And actually we did get some money from the Florida Inland Navigation District because they were able to use some of those islands down at Snook Islands. They need, they need seagrass mitigation. So we were able to get seagrasses to grow there as well. Cause when we build the islands, we had to create everything. We had to create the submerged areas as well, because that area was about 15 foot deep and it was, a, 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 and the lagoon itself is generally about four or five foot deep throughout. So if you have an area that's deeper than five feet, it's probably artificial. So this area off of Snook Islands, which was a, an old golf course, um, that area is about 15 foot deep in general. And it actually had some muds on the bottom that accumulated over time. So uh, by bringing all the sand in there and filling this big area, this sumpy area that was created probably about 100 years ago, we were able to get this whole thing to come up to uh, generally uh, intertidal and the islands themselves would be intertidal to almost um, the, the right at the limits of high tide. And then we went down about three or four foot lower than intertidal or subtidal. And then those areas were the areas that we could get seagrasses to grow. From that point on, we've been, we've been getting lots of money to do projects. So people have been just giving us money, realizing that this, this thing's working. It's, it's looking good. We have wildlife coming in using them. And those birds, we have oyster catchers coming in and nesting in them. It's a bird that no one's seen very much of. Uh, maybe once in a while they migrate through the area, but they never actually saw any nests. And we have successful like three or four nests every year now within the Snook Islands area that we, that we built. And we probably have 10 to 12 more projects I could talk about. Um, I don't want to get into too many, but um, we've, and they're not as big as Snook, but we have projects like South Cove and, uh, we have one called Grassy Flats. We have one called Jewel Cove. So we have all these areas that we've been working on. We're trying to spread them out and create a blue way so people can get in a kayak and kind of interconnect these areas that we're restoring. You can interconnect them all so they can get, you know, three or four miles of 
of paddling it and, and get to see all these things. And the way that the islands work is it kind of helps protect these kayakers. Is the intention that you're creating these islands so you can protect the kayakers from all the boat wakes going up and down the intercoastal too? It's a, definitely a spin-off benefit by having those islands there because, yeah, when you take your kayaks between the islands and the shoreline, um, you have the intercoastal on the other side of the islands. So you create like a shadow effect for, from boat wakes and from wind fetch and things like that. So, yeah, it's a, it's a real kind of a, a flat area that you can just, you know, and, and the boats going up and down there. I mean, there's some big boats and they throw out sometimes two or three full wakes. So you don't want to get rock and rolled. Uh, you know, in your kayak, but if you're behind these islands, you, you're definitely in the shadow and you can, uh, you can do some fishing and not get, you know, pounded too bad. So that, that's a good thing. Birds seem to like them a lot. Waiting birds come in, they use them. There's some, a lot of juvenile fish will come in, in there. We do seining, uh, probably a few times a year to see what kind of juvenile fish we get to come in there. We, we're getting snook, which is one of our big game fish here locally. Um, we get gray snapper. We even got some bonefish to come in and that's a, that's probably the uh, the coup de gras for uh, people like to uh, to catch a sport fish because of the fight it gives when you when you catch it. So, so we're getting some of those to come into this area. And and prior to these islands being there, there was nothing there. I mean, it was just a sump. Um, so we all these things we've done, we've sort of created this from scratch for the most part. So you're making kind of these spoil islands from scratch. How do you go about? selecting the location you know there was nothing there before it, it seems like usually but is there a hydrodynamic reason why you're picking these or just it seemed like you were trying to connect them eventually but initially how did you go about selecting the actual location well i guess from a physical standpoint you're looking for something that has no resources so the big thing is you know you got to get permits to do this stuff and there's a lot of agencies out that are protecting everything in the world all the all the we have manatees going through there all the time we have green sea turtles that are endangered we have a, a lot of critters um small salty small salty um is, is another one i guess that you can find in this area um and so you have to appease you have to make sure that whatever you design has to avoid any impact resources or Avoid to the for the most part it's something that you might be able to justify maybe a small amount somewhere and you could mitigate uh, by building these things. So that's the first and foremost thing you have to look at. Then physically, besides that, besides looking at the natural resources that the area has, and so that that sort of focuses on these areas that have been impacted already. So a spoil island is an area that's already been impacted. Uh, a dredged hole uh, next to the uh, the Snook Islands area that dredged hole is an impacted area. So you're kind of focusing on areas that man's already messed up and you're trying to make it better. So uh, those, are the, those are the primary focuses. And typically those areas don't have natural resources associated with them. If you have an area where you spoiled, made a spoil island from digging the intercoastal, generally those areas are going to have Australian pines on them because uh, it's too high. It's a high elevation. Mangroves really don't get a chance to colonize. It's too high. And we have a lot of Australian pine seeds that seem to spread around. They float around them in the, in the tides and they, they set up and, and they grow very quickly. So we wind up having a lot of these impacted areas that we can start from scratch, you know, clear the Kansas and paint our own, do our own painting, so to speak. Um, and then the other thing is, I guess, the, the deeper areas. If we want to try to build, and I focus on reefs too, but if we want to build a reef or we want to build an island, 
we're looking for areas that are, are relatively deep um, that have been impacted. We don't necessarily want to go into an area that's shallow because some shallow areas with sand actually are productive. You may not have seagrasses on them, you may not have mangroves, but there's there's critters that really need open sand flats and even subtitle sand flats, um, clams, and you know you have uh, certain types of uh, snails that, that that work the areas. You have a little bit of seagrass there. You have <laughs> certain populations of crabs maybe that that also use those areas with a little bit of rock. So you have to have a smattering of everything. You don't want to just have every, you don't want to take away another resource to create something else. You you want to kind of go into an area where there really isn't anything at all. There's nothing redeeming about the area. That's the area you typically would pick to do this. So is it is it oftentimes difficult to get permitting for these areas? Um, typically in the beginning, yes. In the beginning, when we wanted to fill an area in the open, um, we got a lot of pushback. We had to show that these areas were non-productive. So we had to do a, a suite of benthic infaunal surveys. We had to go out and collect samples at the bottom using partite, uh, partite ponars and bringing them up to the surface and picking out the critters that were in them. We had to do, do it seasonally for a year. So we had a we probably spent, I mean, hundreds of hours picking bugs and picking invertebrates and trying to show the fact that there wasn't much at the bottom. Um, and then picking areas that we know that we could bring the elevations up and then showing the fauna being so much better within those areas. So we had to sell ourselves in the beginning. And so the first couple of projects was, was difficult to sell. But then once we started showing successes and once the agency started realizing, well, these areas aren't very productive, so we're not going to force the county to have to go out there and do the same whole regime of infaunal uh, survey. Um, we got away from that. So now we just say it's a dredged hole, and we, here's the elevation, and there's mud at the bottom. That's good enough for them. So now the, now the permitting is a lot easier to come by. Um, with permits we can turn around fairly quickly. Um, I think they recognize us as being the good guy because we're, you know, we're bringing building all these mangrove islands that otherwise there would be nothing there. So we're getting, we're getting to the point now where the agencies are actually taking pride in working with us and getting these built and sometimes even inputting and saying, Hey, why don't you try this or why don't you do that? So kind of making them project managers too, in a way, and it, it makes the permitting part of this even that much easier when you do that. So, um, uh, so generally now I'd say no, but back in the past, yeah, we de- definitely had some issues with permitting. So it kind of seems like you've just had to build trust over the years with these kind of projects, you know, like get the, um, get the agencies on your side and know that you're the good guy trying to do some good in the area. Um, who exactly was, the, was yeah. the initial pushback like mainly from, federal or was uh, was a lot of the public kind of pushing back on these projects we've had public the public being very vocal in, in, in occasion um depending on where we're working in and the public typically look at their property values when they look at what we do um with a islands uh, project which impacted over an acre of, uh, of shoreline um we were able to to stabilize that shoreline. There was a seawall there built probably 80 years earlier and that seawall had failed. So they, they, they were losing the shoreline over time. And so their only opportunity to fix that was to go and build seawall. 
And the cost of a new seawall for that length of shoreline is probably $10 million in that, in that category, in that neighborhood. Um, and so by building these islands, um, these islands did cost, because we had to bring all that sand down, it did cost probably almost double that, but we got all these benefits out of it on top of it. So the, the, the local city and the neighborhoods initially didn't support it. The city realizing they were going to save a ton of money on having to build a seawall, because it was their property, it's in front of a, uh, a golf course. They they were supportive of it after that. Um, the people that lived though on the other side of the golf course who could see the water from maybe a thousand feet away, they weren't altogether excited about it because they were worried about losing a view and worried about their property values if they lost that view. So we had to work out a deal where any place there was an existing view, we would not put an island there and block that view. Um, and what happened was after we got the project complete, we had actually removed a lot of Australian pines that blocked a lot of the views to the people that lived along that shoreline. Once we took the Australian pines down, they had a clear view. So they were actually very excited and happy about it. Um, so it actually flipped around. But like you were saying earlier, the trust thing, the trust factor, you know, you have to go in there and build a few of these and show the success of them. And when people say, you know, when you work for government, a lot of times they don't trust you. They got your government. You're going to say whatever you're going to say. Just so I back down. But the reality is, you know, you have to actually prove you got to, you know, put your money where your mouth is and you have to, to do a project and show the successes and show the benefits to everyone. Now, does everyone, is everyone excited and happy at the end? You'll still get a few people that aren't going to be happy, but if you can get 90 or 95% of the people happy and you know, the wildlife is happy. They're just not vocal about it. Um, you, you feel like you've done a good thing. How do you see these mangrove projects progressing into the future? And, you know, you, you hinted on a lot of like smaller projects, but how do you see these larger projects as well going into the future? So I think in the future, um, we're building, we, we continue to build islands. We have three or four islands that we're building off the city of West Palm. Right now, we're building, we have three or four uh, islands constructed or in, in the process of uh, getting, but not constructed in, in the permitting phase uh, with the Corps of Engineers south of, of Lake Worth and the city of Lake Worth. So we have probably another, you know, maybe 80 or 100 acres of islands and areas around the islands planned for in the next couple of years. So that's, that's good. Um, the other thing we're doing is we're working with the Nature Conservancy, and they're really interested in resiliency and how these islands are going to protect shorelines. And so they've provided some funding to us. So we're in the process now of sending an agreement with them in the next couple of weeks. They're going to come up with some funding. We're going to build some prototypes for them. Um, they have a lot of uh, people that are willing to, to provide funding to do this sort of thing. Um, so we want to prove a few things with the island. We're building these little islands but we're also incorporating some rock pods and trying to get mangroves to grow in these rock pods. We don't have to use sediment and would reduce the cost of the project a lot. And if we could get mangroves to survive and, and flourish and that's sort of a medium, we would, we could make, we could build a lot more mangrove areas for a lot less money. So we're trying different things where we can make it cheaper. And maybe these are the kind of things that we could put in front of people's houses. Uh, if it's going to cost, you know, 20% of what a big project might cost, then the scale of, uh, it doesn't have to be a big project to make a cost effect. You get away with smaller projects too. 
So the Nature Conservancy is really on board on this. They're really into the resiliency. They're trying to protect shorelines. Um, I think the, the sea level rise and, and the threat of that, um, I think mangroves are going to be really important to protecting shorelines and down the road. Um, the mangroves, they, uh, they're fortunate mangroves are able to create sand around the root systems. And so they actually build sand over time. So you're actually getting a higher elevation with mangroves are big. Um, if the mang- if the, as long as sea level rise doesn't go faster than the mangroves ability to be able to create sand, it, it should work. And my 30 years of experience, I haven't seen any mangroves damaged at all from sea level rise. They seem to be able to produce sand to keep up with the sea level rise. Um, and our designs haven't really changed too much elevation wise. So I think that's going to be important um, going forward is, is building, you know, working with the conservancy, continuing to build these islands where we can, um, make them cost effective as cheap as possible, get the word out. The more that you build, though, it seems like the more you build, the more people want to see them get built. And that's where we're at now is we got the momentum on our side on that. So I just see us building, building, building now. And it seems like the money's just showing up. Before we had to go fight for every nickel. Now it seems like, hey, I got a million dollars here. You guys interested in building some more islands? It's like, sure. So we're getting a lot of that. Welcome back, everyone. Um, you guys just had a chance to hear from Carmen Bear, who is an environmental specialist at Palm Beach County. Um, there's some pretty interesting points that I thought um, that Carmen brought up. But before we get into that, um, Chris, what did you think was the best parts of uh, Carmen's podcast? Um, yeah, it was cool to hear a little more in depth about the spoil islands that we got to see in person in Florida. Um, he really hinted on, you know, the importance of when you're creating these, the elevation of um, where you're planting all the mangroves. And if you're, you know, half a foot off, the, your, your spoil island could potentially get ruined. Um, I also really liked his idea with how they were raising funds in Florida um, with the boater registration and how successful they were with that. Um, and it seems like they're really gaining momentum down there with some of these projects. Um, which parts did you enjoy, Kiernan? Uh I think I really enjoyed hearing about the benefits of the spoil islands and kind of like how these parts of the intercoastal where there wasn't that much ecological benefit. And after they did so many of these like benthic surveys for it, they showed there really wasn't much going on because it was so deep, which is very unnatural for the intercoastal waterway. Um, it was interesting and like nice to hear that what they were doing was making a big impact and they're getting um they're getting some fish back that some of the sport fishermen and the people who have been giving them funds to try to get these projects for the projects are actually getting benefits now back another thing that uh was also interesting to hear about which was at the end of carmen's podcast was him talking about the the mangrove pods and he briefly mentioned that um sand is like is a is a big determinant in the cost of projects and i think what some people don't really know is that the cost of sand in america can be pretty expensive and also the slope that you need to build a stable sand bank on is like a one to ten slope which is a very 
gradual slope in comparison to like rocks or mangrove pods in this case, which Carmen talked about, where you can essentially build them on a slope of one to two. So I think that was very interesting to hear about. And I really hope that um, those pods actually do become a, a reality because if that's the case, it could drastically reduce these projects, but it also could make it feasible for a local homeowner to do it just for their private property instead of figuring out a way to allocate funds or finding other funding resources in a way to kind of encourage environmental benefits to one's property. Yeah, and if these things are successful, it, it would make undertaking a smaller residential project just a lot easier. You know, you wouldn't have to have such a big project for it. You could have a couple of these rock pods stabilizing the smaller mangroves and hopefully bring down the price by an enormous amount. So, it, yeah, it'd be really cool to see these smaller mangrove projects going into, you know, like houses on the intercoastal or um, different hotels instead of having to do these really large federal projects like the Spoil Islands, which are also a really good thing, but it would be able to make a mangrove restoration a little more widespread. And then maybe that way it wouldn't be, as as you remember, Carmen talked about kind of having to make that concession with the Snook Islands where when they put in the mangroves, they had to allow a permit to trim the mangroves for the local homeowners. Maybe if the local owners instead were putting these on the property, yes, they can do what, what they want with it. But at the end of the day, at least there's some mangroves where there used to not be mangroves. Um, so another person that we wanted to talk to and we came in contact when we were down there in Florida was a environmental specialist named Greg Braun. And he's worked on some projects a little bit different from Carmen Bear. Uh, specifically talking about um, avian bird habitat and using these spoil islands for avian birds. So um, right now we're going to transition into our interview with Greg Braun who again is an environmental specialist down in the Stewart, Stewart, Lake Worth, and West Palm Beach area of Florida. Yes, okay. Well, thanks for the opportunity to spend some time with you here. Uh, my name is Greg Braun. I'm a professional ecologist based in Jupiter, Florida. I've had the pleasure to be working on a number of habitat enhancement and restoration projects, primarily in the coastal environment in Southeast Florida, the Bahamas, and some of the Caribbean islands. So could you possibly talk with us about what's the most interesting project you've worked on and why? Yeah, well, I've had a number of interesting ones over the years. I've been doing this sort of work for over 20 years, and it's taken me to a variety of very interesting locations. They all seem to present their own challenges. Uh, one particular one, though, that I'm going to feature here is one sort of in my own backyard in uh, Martin County in southeastern Florida. It was a project where we were doing some habitat enhancement on a small island in the Indian River Lagoon. It's an island that uh, is actually a spoil island um, that was created during the dredging of the Atlantic Intracoastal Waterway back in the 1940s. So unlike many projects where we're trying to restore habitat to what it had been like back uh, prior to man's interventions, in this particular case, it's a non-natural feature, but the, we were trying to do habitat enhancement on it because after it was created, it has become a valuable habitat for nesting birds 
And as the years have gone by, this small island has been subject to erosion. And so we've been trying to uh, maintain the habitat as a good nesting site for birds. So what was the main goals of that project? Was it just for bird habitat or was it for um, some marine habitat or was it for some engineering protection, the spoil islands that you talked about? Right. Well, it started off as primarily an ecological restoration or enhancement project because it's the only location in our area where this endangered species, the wood stork, uh, uh, a large wading bird, is known to nest. And as this island had been subject to erosion over the last uh, many years, uh, we were seeing it getting smaller and smaller and the nesting areas that the birds were using uh, diminishing over the years. So there was a desire to try to do some sort of shoreline stabilization. And so uh, we started off with a number of kind of what we thought were going to be simple fixes of doing some plantings of native vegetation along the shoreline. Uh, we ran into some challenges with that, and partially because soon after one of these restoration attempts, we were hit right in the eye of two different hurricanes. Hurricanes Francis and Jean in 2004 came in um, after we had done a lot of plantings. And those storms, uh, which was, it was a Category 2, both of those storms were Category 2 storms, and they uprooted mangrove trees that were um, decades or maybe even centuries old. And so it really reinforced the need for us to do some uh, shoreline stabilization uh, ac activities. So over the years, we have been doing more plantings and some of the challenges that we have encountered on this is many of the species, well, there are over 40 different species of birds that use the island and some of them are protected under the Endangered Species Act, and the birds, one species or another, is nesting um, every month of the year. And so our ability to get on the island and do shoreline plantings and that sort of thing was certainly limited. We were working with the state and federal wildlife agencies to ensure that our activities were uh, minimizing any adverse impacts to nesting birds. So we have tried some uh, sort of soft shoreline enhancements with um, oyster, uh, live oyster mats, and done some plantings of mangroves and um, cordgrass and that sort of thing. Um, as time went on, though, we saw that even those uh, kind of soft uh, ecological features were not adequate to prevent the island from continuing to erode. Um, so back in 2012, we came in and did a more structural fix with a um, elevated breakwater offshore that would protect the island from, uh, from the worst of the wind and waves. So it's a project that has been going on for a number of years and we're constantly trying to uh, do this combination of um, engineering fixes and environmental fixes to keep the island in a, a stable. For going back to the wood stork that you were talking about, do they 
what part of the island's vegetation are they using? Are they using the mangroves for um, hunting habitat? Are they using it for nesting? What what are the benefits of using these different vegetations for this project for birds? Right, very definitely. The birds were nesting and are still nesting in the tops of the mangrove trees. And so different species of these dozen or so species that do nest on the island use different parts of the uh, of the habitat overall, the wood storks and some of the other wading birds, uh, wading and water birds, cormorants and, and hingas are usually nesting up there at the top of the canopy. And then there are other species, roseate spoonbills and little green herons that are using the understory area. And then uh, one of the surprising features, and Kieran, you may remember this from our excursion out in Lake Worth Lagoon, is we've actually had oyster catchers come in and nest on this rock breakwater that was constructed to try to prevent the island from eroding. So there, different species are using all the different habitats on the island. The island's only about an acre and a half in size, and so there is safety in numbers. So the, the birds are uh, recognizing with all of these uh, nests in the area that it's a safe area, free of ground predators and that sort of thing. So um, each year that they're nesting, additional species seem to be coming in and making use of that preserved habitat. So when you're completing these restoration projects, um, what are some of the challenges that you usually face? Um, beside, like environmental, personnel, um, regulatory? Well, probably the initial uh, step in any of these projects is identifying what the long-term goal is going to be. And typically in most habitat restoration projects, we want to go back to the time before humans came in and started messing around with things. And so establishing what those baseline conditions that are our target goal is, is very important. Um, often we go back to aerial photographs, and certainly we were able to do that in the Bird Island situation going back several decades to see how that island had eroded over the years and did some engineering modeling to try to figure it out. But that's probably the, uh, the, the, the biggest challenge is identifying what it is we want to restore and getting accurate information for what the conditions were like uh, prior to those sort of impacts. You know, the uh, quality of historical aerial photos isn't very good, and there's usually limited information on biodiversity. So trying to uh, restore or recreate uh, previous habitats, the, the first challenge is identifying what it is you, you want to try to do. The next is certainly balancing potentially conflicting needs and desires. You know, on any of these projects, there are going to be uh, different perspectives on what's best and what isn't best. And so trying to work those out on the Bird Island project that I was talking about, which has that uh, ultimately that project has been identified as an important bird area by uh, the state of Florida. But the part of the challenge there was, yes, we knew from an ecological perspective what it was going to take to create a healthy habitat, but we can't uh, operate just in the vacuum of what the ecologists want. In that particular situation, some of the competing interests were indeed part of the reason 
that the birds are nesting there is there's plentiful fisheries resources around the island. Well, that makes it an attractive area for commercial fishermen and recreational fishermen. So uh, th there were some challenges there that uh, some of the entities did not want us to be preserving this because it was going to impact things that they like to do recreationally or the commercial fishing. There's also sometimes conflicting challenges just within the environmental realm. Uh, you know, we don't like to be put in the position of trying to manage for one species over another. And so we constantly strive to figure out good keystone or indicator species. And so an example of that, I do some work in the scrub community in Uplands as well. And so there, the couple species that we have identified are scrub jays, uh, a species of protected bird, and gopher tortoises. And generally, if we're doing the kind of habitat management that is good for those sentinel species, those same management techniques are going to be beneficial for the other suite of organisms that use that same scrub community. You mentioned how you, how you um, when you're doing restoration projects, you're trying to figure out what were conditions like before human intervention or human impacts and stuff like that. When you're working on dredge islands, those are kind of really just like newly formed islands. So there isn't really a baseline ecologically on those islands. So what do you use to establish, what do you think the new baseline should be for those newly formed islands that are being created? Right. Well, they're, they're not newly formed anymore because with the uh, environmental regulations, there's, there's no longer the creation of spoil islands at all. They're, uh, in, in Florida, they have all moved to inland uh, spoil disposal facilities. And, and so in this particular uh, situation at this bird island, what we're striving for is just a stable situation, recognizing that there may be hurricanes that come through and uh, we lose some habitat on one side, but then there's natural accretion on the other side of the island. So that was one of the uh, rationales for installing that rock breakwater is it's going to present, uh, prevent that sort of erosion um, on the most ex exposed shoreline. So what we're looking for there is having a, um, a, a stable island size and a vegetative community that is self-sustaining. You know, we want the plants that are in there to be producing seeds um, so that they will regenerate, recognizing that a hurricane or other things are going to come in, that you're going to have some natural mortality, but overall have the system stable enough that there's a natural. So when you're doing these projects and you want to use more nature-based features or other things like that, what are some challenges um, that you face regulation-wise and what do you think you would need to be changed to be able to promote more living shoreline projects? Well, one of the challenges that we have on, in shoreline areas it has to do with sort of the artificial system of land or property ownership. Uh, to, to recreate or restore a, a natural system, you need to be doing some work down below mean high waterline. 
and that's usually owned by the state or the federal government. You need to be doing some work in the intertidal zone, so you've got different ownership and management issues there, and then you need to be doing some work um, uplands of mean high water. So there are, uh, th there's a suite of uh, organisms, um, plants, and the uh, associated animals that, that come into those areas that uh, would sort of naturally be found in all of those areas. So in order to get the approvals to do these sort of projects, uh, certainly in Florida, and I'm sure in other areas as well, there's there are different uh, kind of regulatory obstacles to uh, to, to being able to perform those. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. You just got a chance to hear from Greg Braun, who is a environmental specialist down in the West Palm Beach, Lake Worth Lagoon, and also Stewart, Florida area. He uh, gave us some great talking points about some of the projects he's done, namely down in the Indian River Lagoon, where he did a, some spoil islands that he added avian bird habitat for, and specifically talking about how the mangroves, and there's the different layers in the mangrove canopy for different types of birds. And he also kind of talked about how um, the different types of engineering design they use, both green infrastructure as well as gray infrastructure, meaning like an offshore breakwater in this case. Um, Chris, what did you think was the most interesting topic that Greg kind of highlighted when he is navigating these environmental restrictions as well as regulatory restrictions that he talked pretty extensively about in the interview? Um, yeah, it was it was cool to hear his perspective compared to Carmen's because it seemed like they had worked on really similar projects physically, but the some of the goals were a little differently oriented for them. So Carmen, you know, a lot of times was looking at fisheries and um, reestablishing habitats. And then uh, Greg was more looking at the avian side and trying to bring birds back into these areas. Um, so yeah, it was cool to here, you know, these projects are pretty versatile when it comes to ecology. They can bring back a lot of different species. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought it was really interesting to hear, you know, even within Greg's project, within an environmentalist standpoint, they still had conflicting interests. So yeah, it just goes to show like, you know, even though we're all on the same side, if people have different perspectives or different goals on the project, then um, you know, there might be conflicting interests that come about. Yeah. Another thing that, uh, Greg also kind of talked about was when you work with these spoiled islands, there's not really any baseline because it's like a brand new island. So they have to try to match it with the environment around them. But if they don't know the baseline of the environment around them, that's also difficult. And it kind of comes into what's the human definition of the environmental state. And do we really know that? And then another thing that he talked about was, do we have access to all of the areas that we need to actually do a full environmental restoration? Namely yeah. with like the mean high water, the mean low water and the different water lines. Cause that means 
different people in the U.S. for the U.S. at least different people own below or above those water lines. Yeah, it seemed like kind of a difficult area to navigate with all these different ownerships of the area. You know, he was talking about the intertidal zone and then inland and even lower than the intertidal zone. We we kind of need to focus on all these things for these projects because um, there's different species that live in all these different areas and they're all very important. But when it comes to regulations and ownership for each of these different zones, it may differ for every project. So it sounds like definitely a a pretty difficult thing to navigate as an engineer or as an environmentalist. Especially when the the environment you're trying to restore and for the species and different animals, you may have to abide by the human regulations and the human lines and the hard, the hard edges of property, but animals don't and nature doesn't. So to do a full restoration, sometimes you need to be able to go into places that you might by law not be able to. So this also led us to want to kind of talk to a person who navigates this realm in a in the private sector and he's also a coastal engineer as well and since we're coastal engineers we kind of wanted to gain his perspective about how he kind of uses mangroves in his own designs for coastal engineering and how he also proposes and presents and navigates his regulatory as well as clientele realm um, and so we interviewed Espan Biondi who's from Applied Technology and Management otherwise known as ATM who is out of the West Palm Beach office down in Florida. And we got a chance to talk to him about some pretty interesting stuff as well as how we as engineers can move forward in kind of creating innovative design. So now we're going to dive into Esteban's project as well as uh, his interview. As an engineer, you have that responsibility. As as a consulting engineer, you have that responsibility to propose things, to justify things, to to recommend things that are in the best interest of the client, in your opinion. You put them on the table, you discuss them. There are other team members, there are other points of view, there are different things that need to be looked at. But uh, if no one puts it on the table, it's not going to happen. So, in my opinion, it's the, 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 it's the engineer's responsibility to put it on the table. I don't care if you think that the guy may not want to listen to that. You have to put it on the table and see what happens. They say no. You give the arguments why it makes sense. They say no. Okay, that's it. But, uh, but so many times they say no the first time because they just never heard of it. And uh, you have to show how it was done. So case studies are so important. So in Latin America, I got clients saying, well, mangroves, they, this, uh, my, my clients, no one's going to want to buy land on mangroves or next to mangroves. The mosquitoes, the flies, that's things. It's horrible. Um, and then... I bring pictures of multi-million dollar homes in, in Jupiter that have 
between mangrove edge. Uh, and so they're not fundamentally opposite. Uh, in many cases, the perception is right. There is a whole range of circumstances where that is not true. You have to do it the right way. <clears throat> I had a client in, in Panama that in order to build uh, some beach improvement, the first thing was to bulldoze everything that was out there. <clears throat> and um, we were walking the site and I, and I showed him, you know, the nicest trees in this part of the property that you can easily keep are the mangroves. They are already giving you shape, shade. They are already in, in the right place. Uh, they are beautiful. Uh, why instead of bulldozing everything and redoing everything from scratch, why don't we look at pocket beaches that are surrounded by mangroves? They're super private, much nicer, and and that was uh, and, and and he liked the idea. So you have to be creative. Um, it's it's not always or for, actually. It's mostly not a pure engineering justification, the one that is going to make, to make the case, but a comprehensive um, understanding of design that is going to justify the case. And it can start anywhere. And if the engineer has any experience or has any reference to be the one that puts the mangrove shoreline or the mangrove island, on the table, you have to do it. We were in a project in, uh, so when we were preparing this, this chat, you, you wanted to hear about, about stories. And um, so um, I was, I, I made a note to tell the story because this is the same everywhere. Yeah. This is the same everywhere. So I, I, I talked about Panama. I, I can tell you stories about all the guys in Mexico that don't want to put uh, a mangrove in the project because uh, the regulators then do not let them even trim the, the mangrove. So some regulations that overextend, then they don't encourage the, the, the good behaviors. Uh, it's, and it's silly, but it's real. It happens. Um, and then uh, the, the, these, these stories in the Bahamas and, and the Cayman Islands, when I, 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 I briefly mentioned the stories in, in, in Saudi, same patterns. Uh, now a corner of the world I didn't have included. There was a guy in China. So we proposed some little mangrove islands to provide wave protection. And so we were in this big meeting with all these, all these people on the, on the client side, so 20 Chinese guys uh, listening to our presentation. So one of the first questions or the, the question from the engineers was, what, are, what do you mean mangrove islands? What do you mean wave 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 protection? Uh, and of course, there aren't that many projects that we can use to demonstrate the concept. But uh, there is a spoil island that has mangroves that provides wave protection in the Dinner Key Marina in Miami. So we yeah. we show them that was the answer, and then we spend half an hour. Uh, in that, uh, in the in the second part of the of, of the meeting, just going through Google Earth images and showing how the mangrove 
in the island provided the, the protection that we could introduce as a deliberate design concept. There, because this is not widespread, it's very difficult to find an example of a project that has taken all these issues into account as part of the original justification of the project. But there are tons of little examples here and there that you can pick and choose to build a case and, and, and justify comprehensive value to the project. So there are projects in, the, in the, some of those I, I think you, you visited in, in Palm Beach County that included mangrove restoration only, only as an ecological restoration project. Yeah, they wanted that's, it for bird and fish. Yeah, that was that was the funding. That was the design intent. Mm -hmm. The only purpose of that project was to uh, uh, do some uh, ecological restoration of the lagoon. Then, as an afterthought, they realized that some of those features could provide some uh, stone protection. Then people started using the uh, the the mangrove island. Uh, water the water spaces that the mangrove islands created for recreation, and then they build the kayak, the kayak launch for that project. It was a secondary thing. It was an afterthought because when I asked the guys, well, give me a, a document that shows, uh, because I want to use this case study, it's wonderful. Give me a, a, a document that shows that you took all these issues into account the ecological restoration, the way protection and the recreational uses. They didn't have it. They didn't have the document because it evolved. Then years later, they were working on another project and the recreational component was part of the original plan. Uh, so you have to build a case, pick examples, get, there are tons of examples out there. You just need to have an eye to identify what's going on, to see where the value is. If you have an approach, if you have uh, a framework of understanding, uh, then you see the opportunities. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you think that maybe some a reason why some engineers don't want to use mangrove design or don't want to propose mangrove design is because they don't want to deal with the potential legal ramifications if their design becomes faulty? Or do you think that as engineers, as long as they keep, as long as they do a sound design to what they are comfortable with, they should present it anyways? So again, you can do design of a manga of shoreline that only relies on the underlying structure for the engineering functions. So you can do that today. The rock sizes, sizing of the revetment uh, above the water level and, uh, and the revetment and, 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 and slope protection below, below water. You create, um, you can create uh, the intertidal area for the mangroves and you can design, you can do the full engineering design with all the existing traditional, existing available engineering design tools and guidelines, 
and and your your professional liability is 100% covered. You can do that today. Um, yeah, you can. Then when when the uh, the guidelines for design are written, when the full research on wave protection for storm conditions is completed, when um, when the guidelines for the small wave conditions are are written into design guidelines, then you're going to have uh, your professional liability covered as it relates to the wave protection. Uh, but you can do that now. There's absolutely no reason other than this is not business as usual. Yeah, so just, so, yeah. So the main point from a, from an educational point of view is, it, does it make sense that the only thing that you're going to do is business as usual? I mean, we are living times that demonstrate that you cannot do business as it's business as, as usual because things change and, and but if you go back to the fundamentals if you check your assumptions then you can use the same rational approach you're just going to come out on, at the other end with a different solution which is best practice of design anyway the approach is always the same. You look at everything comprehensively. You adapt your, your methodology to the issues that are critical to the problem. And when you follow that, and that's design, then the outcome is always different because the little circumstances are always different. But you have to check the assumptions. But you're talking about engineering, checking the assumptions checking the range of applicability. That's a super fundamental engineering rational approach to everything. Just just apply it to a different set of conditions. This is engineering. This is real engineering. The difference is the approach. The difference is, do you want to stick to the surface of engineering, the business as, as usual, the recalculating the same formula over and over, uh, or do you want to think? Do you want to do a little bit deeper engineering? If you don't stop and think, you're never going to be able to do decent design. Welcome back. Uh, you just had a chance to hear from Esbaum Biondi, who is from Applied Technology and Management out of the West Palm Beach, Florida office. And uh, he had some great insight talking about how we as engineers can kind of start using this mangrove design in our everyday projects and proposing it to clients. And he kind of really highlighted an accountability aspect for us as engineers to literally put it on the table, as he says. Yeah. Um, so what what is the what do you think, Chris, was one of the most important things besides putting it on the table that Esteban talked about? Um, I mean, I liked how he suggested we we should kind of start by going the the quote unquote business as usual at first, while there's there's not there's still a lot of research gaps in 
in these mangroves. So um, using the existing breakwater guidelines um, when you're suggesting mangroves for design and still adding in these hard structures for wave attenuation or like hydrodynamic accountability, but then suggesting mangroves for more ecological purposes. Um, and I think that's a good way to kind of start putting them out there more. And yeah, like you said, you know, like we're the ones held accountable for these innovative designs. This client isn't always going to suggest it. So I think it's a really good point that we need to start putting these out there as the engineers. I th also think it highlights a good point about engineers as general. Usually engineers like to be risk adverse and work within the known. And this is kind of an area where it's not totally known. It's not totally figured out yet. And so these designs are definitely needed going forward ecologically with sea level rise with different changes in our environment. However, um, we just need to be more comfortable as engineers providing these projects. And I think Esteban provided a great example of how to do it when he talked about um, sizing the rock if the mangroves weren't there like you talked about and then putting the mangroves in for ecological benefits until we know some attenuation effects um, for real after we've done enough research and that's what at Oregon State here we're trying to achieve as well. So kind of wrapping up, Chris, uh, how do you think that mangrove design in the future can kind of coincide with what Esteban talked to us, talked to us about? Um, yeah, it was, it was cool to hear that he was using projects like Greg and Carmen's that we heard about before as success stories for these mangrove projects. So a client was confused about it and Esteban was able to use these examples um, to show the client, you know, hey, these things have succeeded in the past. They may have had different goals in the beginning, you know, more of habitat restoration or um, recreation, but they also had these co-benefits of slowing erosion down and protecting certain areas from waves and wind. So both sectors can kind of work in cohesion with these success stories. Like they're going to gain more momentum in the future, um, which will allow not only these ecological projects to carry on, but also new projects like ones Esteban may be working on to use mangroves in the future. I think it'd be really cool to start seeing these rock pods or smaller scale designs come about. It, I think it would broaden the spectrum of what is possible with mangroves and hopefully allow different homeowners or uh, residential areas to utilize these things that can be of such help to our coastline. I think in America that's extremely crucial because of how much of our coastline is privatized. Yeah, I agree. Um, like when we were in Florida going down the intracoastal waterway, you saw hundreds of houses with shoreline along the waterway and they could potentially benefit from some of these smaller scale mangrove projects. So hopefully with the momentum Carmen and Greg and Esteban are building that we can see more of more of these in the future. Thanks again for tuning into our podcast. We hope you learned a lot about mangroves, as I know we definitely did, interviewing all these interesting people. 
Um, once again, this is a special Oregon State Engineering with Nature class series. Um, I'm your host, Chris O'Day, with my co-host, Kiernan Kelty. Big thank you to Megan Wengrove, our professor, for inspiring this project, and the American Shoreline podcast for showing so much interest in it. Hope everyone enjoyed, and thank you for listening.